Now it's ice and slippery. So get some micro spikes. They don't weigh much. Put them in your pack. Tie them to your pack. Um, pair of extra socks, gloves. And if it's a more extensive hike, a mini stove and a metal cup. Uh, you don't each have to have one, but if somebody in your group has it, you know, make sure you have enough for your group. And a, uh, you know, little better jacket, Gore-Tex jacket or whatever, insulated with a hood. Um, and here's just a few extra tips. Uh, be sure of your route, the mileage, uh, the difficulty. You could look that stuff up online, how far it is, or people rate the hike, or it's really slippery here, or it's a dangerous climb. Get a sense of what trail you're taking. Tell someone your hike plan and when you should be back. Check the forecast right before you leave. And keep in mind for those out there who are the mindset of, I took the day off and we're going to climb this mountain, it's okay to turn back. If the weather changes, it's clouding up, maybe it starts to rain, it's okay to turn back. <laughs> Try it another day. Um, and if you bring your dog, <clears throat> understand your dog's antics may not be as amusing to others as they are to you. Just be mindful of your dog, even if it's playfully harassing other people, you know. I like dogs, I grew up with a dog, but uh, don't make your dog, don't let your dog hassle someone else. Uh, some of those disposable heat packs are good. They're cheap. You buy a few of them. A thermos full of hot cocoa or coffee or tea is really nice to have on top of the mountain. And uh, I like to change into another shirt when I get to the summit because my shirt's all sweaty and stuff. You know, it's nice to get into a nice dry shirt. And uh, an important thing is don't forget that, especially noticeable in the fall, winter, the sun the last place the sun leaves is the summit. So, you know, you like you climb Wittenberg and it's sunny on the way up and it's sunny on the summit, but it's already shadows and getting dark down below. So a lot of people, they wait till the sun is gone too late in the day. And by the time they're still a mile away from their car, it's dark and they wish they had a flashlight. So just keep in mind, that it gets dark fast now, this time of year. So leave a little earlier. Um, and for your kids, because kids get lost. There's a lot of these accounts where even older kids will get lost. They go look at something, they get turned around, and pretty soon they've walked uh, 100 yards or more away from everyone else. Have your kids carry some of this stuff. Make sure they, they have a flashlight, they have a space blanket. They have an energy bar. You can put it in their pockets. But rather than your kid being lost with nothing, <laughs> so they can carry some stuff. You know, as soon as they're five, they could have a couple of things in their pocket. So things like that, simple measures, and you'll have a lot less to worry about, getting a lot less trouble that way. Um, and kids, keep, keep your kids in sight. They could easily take a wrong turn on the trail. And then it becomes a search party. You don't want that. If you don't know how to use a map and compass, then I would uh, recommend at least marking your truck or your vehicle as soon as you get out. And then turn it off. Yeah. And then if you need it, you can search your truck or vehicle, especially if you're hunting. 
Right. Because um, you're a lot of this is what happens to hunters, right? You end up following tracks, and now you know mm-hmm. you're not paying attention to your compass or your map, and you don't know where the hell you are. Right. You know, so that happens. That's kind of uh, more about hunters, but it could happen to hikers, I guess, too. Yeah. 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 But um, and I can't over uh, overstate the hat. It keeps you so warm, oh, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, it really does. Five fifty cord. I love five fifty cord. Uh huh. Yeah. You know. That stuff is really good. To I have it wrapped around my hiking stick. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's handy. It really is, but um, I don't know what else as far as taking. But the headlamp is probably the best invention to mankind in the last few years. <laughs> oh, the last time I went up Wittenberg, not long ago, it was mid-afternoon, later after getting into later afternoon, and there were still people climbing up for the day hike. Yeah. And they're going to be hiking down in the dark. They may not even realize it, but um, it sneaks up on you. Oh, yeah, it does. But, um, yeah, I, I got this new headlamp that made by Olight, and I just I love it. It's, it's just the best thing ever, you know. I don't know how many hours and hours it lasts unless you have it on high. Go ahead. Yep, and if you want to see some of my trail cam videos, you could go to uh, Catskill 4000 Club on Facebook, and there will be a link to the uh, – to the blog or just Catskill Forest Adventures blog and you'll see some bear videos and coyote videos and bobcat videos um you might have some fun watching them absolutely hey Paul thanks for coming on thank you all right have a good night and see you next Wednesday yep take care the icy wind it the water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow his eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in the street. A dozen faces stopped to stare, but no one stopped to speak. For his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend And the old man stumbled in from the forest Up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way His ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay IOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Home Goods of Margaretville, corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Margaretville, New York. Now carrying spices, flour, jams, mustards, coffee and tea, organic vegetables and fruits, and local eggs, milk, cheese, and baked goods. And of course, cooking basics and tools of the trade for everyone at home. Home Goods of Margaretville. Open every day. 845-586-4177 or hgom.net. The Delaware County Chamber of Commerce, a catalyst for sustainable economic prosperity in the Catskills, fostering cooperation, forging partnerships, promoting tourism, providing legislative advocacy, and building strong community ties throughout the region. More information at 607-746-2281 or delawarecounty.org. Peekamoo's Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian for farm-to-table cuisine, seasonal specialty cocktails, and local craft beers. 
Peekamoose, dining room, tap room, lounge, and outdoor deck. Open Thursday through Monday at 5 p.m. Dinner reservations recommended, 845-254-6500, 845-254-6500, peekamoose.com. Hi, I'm Diana Mason, the host of Health Cetera in the Catskills, Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on WIOX Roxbury, live and local in New York's Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, WIOXradio.org, and MTC Cable Channel 20. The RSS was founded in 1925. Its ideologues were very impressed by European fascism. But the RSS is the most powerful organization in India today. It has a militia. It has schools in which millions of children study. It's a nation within a nation ready to step out and take its place in the world. In fact, in 2025 will be its 100th year. And perhaps there will be a declaration of India as a Hindu nation. That's Arundhati Roy, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Arundhati Roy on the RSS, Fascism in India. The realities of India are in sharp contrast with the image it projects internationally. For example, you probably haven't heard of the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, the RSS. It's an Indian right-wing Hindu nationalist paramilitary organization. The RSS, with its millions of members, exerts enormous influence and power in India. Its political party is the BJP, the Bhartiya Janta Party, led by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The RSS is the progenitor and leader of a large body of organizations called the Sangh Parivar, which has a presence in all facets of Indian society. The RSS promotes a Hindu supremacist ideology that is intolerant of India's minority communities especially Muslims. India, particularly under the current regime of Narendra Modi, is, in Arundhati Roy's words, a dangerous place where a deeply flawed, fragile democracy has transitioned openly and brazenly into a criminal Hindu-fascist enterprise. Our guest today is Arundhati Roy the world-renowned, award-winning writer and global justice activist. Tariq Ali says of her, she is both loathed and feared by the Indian elite. Loathed because she speaks her mind, feared because her voice reaches the world outside India and damages the myths perpetrated by New Delhi. Among her many books are My Seditious Heart and Azadi. Arundhati Roy was at her home in New Delhi when I talked with her. I asked her if she thought a revolt, like the one in July in Sri Lanka, ousting the regime in that country, could happen in India, with Narendra Modi being overthrown. Well, a friend in Chennai in South India asked me to ask you if you thought such a revolt against the Modi regime could happen in India. Well, not 
any time in the near future. Right now, um, the Indian economy, you know, I mean, while I don't want to make any easy comparisons with what's happening in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka is a you know, very tiny country. Um, the Indian economy is in a lot of trouble and the rage uh, that, you know, kind of surfaces from time to time, whether it's the farmers movement or whether it's with the recent protests about the change in the laws for recruitment to the security forces, all of those get uh, snuffed out very quickly and all the anger gets redirected into this Hindu nationalist bigotry and that that game uh, works just fine, you know, so uh, I think we're a long way away from seeing something like that happening. In fact, uh, we are seeing the opposite. We are seeing uh, state government after state government being bought over or toppled by the BJP. We are seeing a consolidation of, uh, you know, the institutions of democracy falling uh, into this ideological sort of tunnel, uh, very, very uh, terrifying to watch uh, this, you know, whatever democracy there was being dismantled. Uh, we're seeing absolutely no air movement, airing of opinion possible in places like Kashmir. And you're seeing a lot of violence on the streets. I mean, you know, the, the regime has certainly captured the imagination of uh, a vast part of this population, including the educated uh, middle class. And of course, the media is completely captured. The courts are uh, behaving in very troubling ways. So, yeah. I'd say that we are very far away from the Sri Lanka type of situation. Well, I'd like you to talk about the uh, farmers uh, uprising, the year-long nonviolent uh, action. Nonviolent on the part of the farmers, not yes. on the part of the state. Yes, hundreds, hundreds of, of farmers were killed by state violence. Uh, yes. But I'll call it a successful uh, action. Uh, it remains to be seen if if the Modi regime comes back with new laws. But uh, it's interesting, I know that you as a journalist went there, you talked to them, uh, you found out what their demands were. What impressed you about that whole movement and uh, what kind of lessons can be learned in terms of coalition building beyond farmers? Or was this just a one-off, very, you know, spectacular, but not connecting to anything. So David, I don't think of myself as a journalist, first of all, you know, so I didn't actually go there to the protest sites as a journalist. And in fact, I actually um, kept a little bit away from from that movement, simply because I actually have uh, known people who were involved in it for many years. And I have, you know, spoken at meetings in Punjab and so on. And the reason I wasn't going there much was because there was such a huge attempt on the part of the government to paint them as terrorists, as uh, leftists, as extreme, you know, Maoists and so on. 
and since uh, every adjective has been used on me i was trying to sort of you know stay away and not allow the state to completely paint that movement with people who are recognizably part of other resistances because i know them well of course there were many many groups uh, many farmers groups some of whom even you know are ideologically quite far apart from each other who all came together in this protest one of the reasons that it was successful is because uh, there was a huge uh, wealthy middle class of farmers there who had a lot of staying power and then you had coalitions of you know landless labor dalit um dalit workers of the land who for example have major contradictions with land owning farmers yet everybody came together because they saw it as an existential threat what was happening you had a situation where in fact all the other things that i've written about whether it was the anti dam movement of the narmada valley whether it was uh, the um comrades in the forest in central india uh, fighting against the acquisition of indigenous people's lands by big mining companies or whether it was this farmers movement that saw its own lands and produce uh, falling into corporate hands there's a thread that connects all of this but in the in the anti dam movement and also in the fight that is going on in the forests of central india you don't have the kind of middle class in the resistance that can sustain a movement on that scale and uh, keep it going so this was one of the great advantages apart from apart from actually forcing the government to actually rescind the the three farm laws they that movement also created a new kind of language on the street a, a new language with which to address this ugly hindu nationalist language that has become so acceptable now to the indian media and to uh, the supporters of the bjp but that's the strength of the street does not translate into any kind of strength uh, when it comes to elections even in the punjab or in up or anywhere else so one of the things that we've got to understand is that somehow the electoral process has been captured and compromised and now whatever change will come will come from the street like it did in the farmers movement now uh, rukmini s um an indian uh, journalist warns it would be over ambitious to hold up the farmers victory as a sign of things to come the space for dissent as you've been commenting in india has shrunk markedly as the modi jagannath has rolled on and emboldened uh, hindu nationalism that's uh, her observation now one farmer leader balbir singh rajewal said and i'm quoting here we need to transform our movement 
to remove corporate control of agriculture. And then he adds, without removing Modi, this is not possible. It's time to become a united force to save India. Those are fighting words. Yeah, those are fighting words. And uh, well, the trouble is that when you look at what happened in the Punjab elections, some of the people from the farmers movement actually stood for elections. They all lost their deposits. In UP too, there was a great hope that uh, the farmers movement would turn the tide against the BJP and Yogi Adityanath, but it didn't do so, even though one can raise certain questions about the about how that election took place. Nevertheless, like like I'm saying, you know, the, the problem is there are two different things here. One is the street and one is the electoral process. And the electoral process has been captured in a whole lot of ways, beginning with the fact that uh, the opposition parties have run out of money, they have run out of imagination, and they have been in, in their own time in power. I'm speaking from the Congress to all the other parties, state parties as well, many of them have been so corrupt that they are spongy with compromise, you know, and so they are now being caught in the talons of the enforcement directorate and they are, most of them, basically being blackmailed and therefore there's no opposition. Secondly, there's a system of secret electoral bonds which makes the funding of political parties a deeply opaque process. You have the institutions that run the elections completely terrified and beholden to the BJP. And then you have a media which is really like Radio Rwanda. I mean, it's just frenzied, bigoted craziness going on. You know, so to actually remove Modi in an election now looks difficult anytime in the near future. I was speaking somewhere and I said, you know, if you look at something in perspective, like in the 60s, there were revolutionary movements demanding the redistribution of land, the redistribution of wealth. They were demanding land to the tiller. Then in the um, 80s and 90s, you came to movements like the Narmada movement, where people were merely fighting uh, displacement. They were just saying, at least don't take away whatever little land we have. By the early 2000s, after, of course, the market reforms and things and the disparity um, you know, of income levels and the, the kind of devastation of the environment was going at such a pace, people, radical activists were fighting for the, what is called the uh, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, where they were just saying, can the government guarantee three months of minimum wages to a rural family, you know, and that would amount to what a normal middle class person would spend on a meal in a restaurant in Delhi. And that was considered an outrageous demand. And now we've come down to people just being given rations with Modi's face on it, you know, five kilos of atta and uh, one kilo of sugar and so on. 
it's like watching a plane be flying backwards you know in reverse here and uh, but and you say uh, that plane is going to crash the point is that we are also because of you know the nature of people's beliefs in hinduism and other kinds of spiritualism a very fatalistic people who seem to so far be able to absorb this punishment in return for some mythic future that lies in the past you know so i don't know when that romance when and if it will end but at the moment it's in full bloom so at the moment you're seeing a crackdown of the kind where every activist lawyers poets uh, writers journalists intellectuals they are being hunted down they are being jailed for you know i mean it's enough a facebook post criticizing modi to you know people who have been fighting for the rights of those who've been murdered in let's say uh, gujarat in 2002 you know the first massacre that took place when modi had just become chief minister or the delhi massacre that took place in early 2020 or uh, the the killing of adivasi people in the forest that goes on and on in uh, central india but now even to pursue the normal paths of justice appeals in courts appeals in high court supreme court asking for an inquiry have become like criminal offenses so it's a very very dangerous time you mentioned uh, yogi adityanath who's a hindu monk and he is the bjp chief minister of uttar pradesh Uh, India's most populous state and it has a large muslim minority and this yogi adityanath who has incidentally i think been mentioned as a possible successor to uh, modi frequently frequently um he has been stoking this uh, islamophobia this anti-muslim uh, hatred and there have been Uh, killings and people burnt alive um, in Muzaffarabad and elsewhere in that state it's not just him david it's a whole sort of uh, i mean it's something that one could almost call a policy so it's not just him it's a you know in fact one of the bizarre cases right now is that there's a young uh, journalist and fact checker called Muhammad Zubair who 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 works for an organization called Alt News which has been brilliant in just systematically debunking fake news whichever political party puts it out you know and Zubair is now uh, being charged with creating enmity between communities and so on because he called Hindu leaders who in the press club of delhi and other places openly called for the genocide of muslims he calls them hate mongers and for that he's in jail this islamophobia has long been a tool of in the hindutva toolbox as it were to mobilize its base but it's recently added to its repertoire of violence the bulldozing of muslim homes and businesses and 
You've written about this in Al Jazeera. That's, I mean, not so new, but now it's being revved up. So basically, uh, whenever Muslims come out to protest, whether it was the sort of anti-Muslim citizenship law, which, which uh, you know, which basically cut the ground from under uh, people's feet, where, I, I mean, you're supposed to come up with a set of legacy papers like, you know, the Nuremberg citizenship laws in the 1930s during the right. So, uh, you know, there was a huge uprising against that, of course, cut short by COVID. But what Yogi Adityanath, in fact, started it, identifying the people who were at the protests and without trial, without proof, without anything, just sending bulldozers to bulldoze their homes. And uh, recently, uh, the same thing happened because of the people who came out to protest the BJP spokesperson's comments about uh, Prophet Muhammad. But the thing about the bulldozing, uh, I mean, we, we've seen mass killing, we've seen lynching, you know, people being uh, killed in encounters by police, fake encounters, we've seen false arrests. But the bulldozing is a spectacle uh, in which uh, the public participates, you know, so the media part, you have a bulldozer, it's almost like some divine mechanical god that arrives, uh, an avenging god that arrives and people are watching, uh, the police are there, the media is broadcasting it, the courts are complicit. So it's a way of drawing all the institutions into the spectacle, uh, the perform performing uh, fascism, performing fascism in which nothing is illegal, you know, now you're showing that uh, everything is at our command. In that uh, Al Jazeera article you wrote on June 17th, uh, you say, to my mind, this marks, that is to say, the, the bulldozing. This marks the moment when a deeply flawed, fragile democracy has transitioned openly and brazenly into a criminal Hindu fascist enterprise with tremendous popular support. That's pretty stark language. It's stark and it's very, it's a, you know, what I find, uh, what is very disturbing is that, you know, um, I keep talking with my friends in Kashmir about it, you know, that in Kashmir, there's a sense in which you have a state, you have the army, you have the torture centers, you have the control of the media, but, uh, and you have, of course, many compromised people, but you don't have this overwhelming sense that uh, a, a, a large section of the population supports all this, whereas in, you know, in India, we have that sense now that this fascist criminal enterprise does have a lot of popular support and we can't deny it. It makes you think all the time about how to live in it. What is the moral way to live in it? What is uh, the way to write about it? Because your your love for, for, the, for the place, for the people, suddenly getting colored by this horror that people are willing to actually 
participate in the crushing of another people, you know, whether it's Christians, whether it's Muslims, whether it's you know, people on the left, whether it's writers, and the hatred is so palpable and so there is a fear too, you know, because people are called out, people are targeted, people are uh, made to understand that we have laws, but those laws are applied differently depending on what's your religion, what's your gender. It's very, very disturbing to live here now, you know, very disturbing. I keep thinking about like how did, you know, how Germans went on giving their children piano lessons and, you know, sending them to school and ballet classes while the unthinkable was unfolding. That hasn't happened here. It's not that even though they're building those huge detention centers and, you know, even though two million people have been struck off the citizenship list in Assam, and even though the very foundations of who is who belongs to this country and who has rights in this country and who doesn't is being questioned. Uh, but people who seen this coming from a long time are now subsumed in it, like drowning, drowning in it. The prime minister now elected uh, twice, Narendra Modi, former chief minister, as you said, of um, Gujarat, uh, his millions of followers uh, refer to him as Vishwa Guru, the guru of the whole world. Now, he's not exactly a charismatic orator or a dynamic personality. What's the secret of his attraction to so many millions of Indians? I don't know. I don't want to use the word charismatic, but no. when he speaks at political rallies, he has this howling, sneering, threatening appeal. And he was called Hindu Hriday Samrat, the, the emperor of Hindu hearts, after the Gujarat massacre. What is important to remember is how did he step onto the national stage? In 2001, October, soon after the 9-11 attacks, when the whole world came to some sort of consensus on being Islamophobic. The RSS saw its moment and Modi was appointed chief minister, not elected, but appointed chief minister of Gujarat. Within a few months, you had the horrible burning of a train in Godhra where 60 Hindu pilgrims, an arson attack in which 60 Hindu pilgrims were burned to death. And following that, you had weeks of this pogrom, this massacre of Muslims uh, in broad daylight on the streets, in the towns and villages of Gujarat. And Modi was the chief minister. And huge questions have been raised about uh, how, uh, you know, the state machinery seemed to have sort of stepped back and allowed this to take place. But soon after the massacre, Modi called for elections. The election commission at the time didn't allow it, but as soon as they allowed it, he won with a huge majority. So the language of 
revenge of some sort of historical revenge, the casting of Muslims, most of whom are actually, you know, people who belong to the oppressed castes of India who converted to, Mus to Islam to ex escape caste are cast as the rulers or the descendants of the Mughals, you know. So there's this crazy sort of judo move that happened. And the, now the Muslims who've been pushed to the bottom of the social ladder, of the economic ladder, they are economically and socially boycotted. You know, I mean, there's nothing new, but they are the great threat and the great enemy and so on. You're listening to Arundhati Roy, on the RSS, Fascism in India. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's Alternative Radio. Now, Kashmir has a special place, it seems, in the ideology and theology of the Hindutva people. Um, and you write, uh, actually, you came to the University of Texas at Austin uh, in April uh, 2022, and you said, what India has done in Kashmir over the last 30 years is unforgivable. Could you briefly describe what India has done over the last 30 years, uh, and what happens on August 5th, 2019, uh, when the Indian constitution is uh, abrogated and what little autonomy Kashmir had was nullified? Jammu and Kashmir was theoretically an independent uh, kingdom, and like many um, you know, when people talk about, they talk about it as the unfinished business of partition between India and uh, when India, the Indian subcontinent is partitioned into India, Pakistan, and then subsequently East Pakistan became Bangladesh. But the thing is that it wasn't just partition because partition sounds that like there was a hole and then it was uh, partitioned. Whereas actually there wasn't a hole, there were more than 500 independent princely kingdoms. And it was, uh, there, there was a violence of assimilation as much as a violence of partition. And so uh, the way in which uh, Jammu and Kashmir came to be a part of the Indian Union with very, very specific safeguards, which, which were written into the Indian constitution under section 370. But uh, by 1990, you had a situation where, you know, in the 1990s, as we know, the whole subcontinent was in turmoil. You had what was going on in Afghanistan and those winds blowing through Pakistan into Kashmir. You had here the rise of the, the wild uh, Hindu fundamentalism, the, the destruction of the Babri Masjid. And so you had an uprising and you had manipulation of the Kashmir elections, uh, continuous manipulation. I can't explain it more than to say that it was the way in which America behaved in 
South Vietnam, you know, like with their, all their puppet governments and that rigged election and so on. And in 1990, it all rose into, a, into an armed uprising, which since then has been put down brutally. And you have, uh, you know, something like half a million soldiers, security forces poli policing that valley. Uh, a, a valley that is now covered with graveyards and you know tens of thousands of people both security forces and Kashmiris have lost their lives and then in on the 5th of August arbitrarily the government abrogated section 370 and basically turned Ladakh which was a part of Jammu and Kashmir into a union territory and uh, took away the state rights so they don't even it's not that they just lost their autonomy they don't even have the right to vote for a local government now while that was being done thousands of people including former chief ministers were all locked up the internet was cut there was uh, for, for months and months the valley was just just locked down with no communication nobody knew what was going on no phones and now um, you have a situation of complete terror you have young students journalists photographers any kind of communication that suggests any form of distress any kind of dissent any disagreement any flagging of the horrors that people are enduring uh, is just uh, smashed with an iron fist. People are in jail, journalists are threat threatened. I don't know how long you can have, uh, you know, six million people living in a situation like that. And what about the possibility of what is called settler colonialism? That is, uh, non-Kashmiris uh, coming into um, so part, of the, part, part of abrogating Section 370 also had to do with uh, abrogating a law that made Kashmiri stewards of their own land. So now Indians can just, uh, you know, flood in and uh, somehow a sort of population transfer could take place. It's difficult because despite all this, they haven't really managed to completely control the area. So even now, every day you have militant attacks, you have signals that despite all this power and all this iron fistedness, they have not been able to smash the place and secure it. Now there's a, a constellation of uh, organizations uh, under the rubric of San Parivar. Um, could you talk about what those organizations are? Obviously, the political party is the BJP uh, and the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, is its um, militia muscle, uh, let's say. But what about no, no, other... No, no, no. It's not its militia muscle. The RSS is the mothership. The RSS was founded in 1925. The RSS ideologues were very impressed by European, I mean, later on uh, in the 30s and 40s by European fascism, particularly by Hitler and Mussolini. Uh, their ideologues have written very openly about how 
you know, the Muslims of India, like the Jews of Germany, uh, the BJP is the front desk of the RSS. And then you have a whole lot of other organizations like the Bajran Dal, the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, and a whole lot of other organizations which are loosely affiliated. And there's a sort of division of labor. But the RSS is the most powerful organization in India today, the most powerful. And you, you have, you know, all your foreign diplomats, German ambassadors, French ambassadors going there to pay their respects. And um, the RSS has hundreds of thousands of members. It has uh, a militia. It has women's organizations, farmers' organizations, uh, indigenous people's organizations. It has publishing. It has schools in which millions of children study. It's a, it's a nation within a nation, ready to step out and take its place in the world. In fact, uh, in 2025 will be its 100th year. And perhaps there will be a declaration of India as a Hindu nation. And there'll be an election I mean, in 2024, the year before. There'll be an election. But, uh, you know, obviously, also, they don't need any declarations because the Constitution of India has more or less been, uh, you know, sidelined. Moving to the United States, a country you have visited uh, multiple times, how do you see the world's so-called second largest democracy? The U.S., along with uh, India, uh, Australia, and Japan, leads an alliance aimed at China called the Quad. So India has long abandoned its neutrality and uh, Bandung spirit to become somewhat uh, an instrument of U.S. power in Asia. The pieces are moving so fast now. I don't know when you look at Trump and Putin and Modi and uh, Le Pen and all these, you know, fascist characters who've, who've had dealing with each other, who, who agree with each other. So, uh, you know, Modi was in Texas and Trump, uh, and he jointly addressed this stadium full of, uh, you know, the howdy Modi moment. And then Trump came to India and had a reverse, uh, you know, stadium full of people and then came to Delhi and was here when the massacre against Muslims in Northeast Delhi was happening. I mean, I think these quads, things will keep changing, you know, because Pakistan had sort of more or less moved into the orbit of China. So India was needed as a base, you know, the fallback base, which used to be Pakistan against China. But now Pakistan, I mean, Imran Khan is gone, so I don't know whether pa Pakistan is moving back to American. You ask in democracy's failing life, could it be that democracy, the sacred answer to our short-term hopes and prayers, the protector of our individual freedoms and nurturer of our avaricious dreams will turn out to be the end game for the human race? So that was written in 2010. Interestingly, way before the BJP came, Modi came to power at the center and the way he did. But 
I mean, you already saw in India that this kind of completely uncontrolled capitalism was washing through the institutions of democracy, conflating democracy with the free market. You saw the devastation of rivers, of forests, of mountains, of the plundering of uh, land, of mining. So you saw a country colonizing itself in a way, you know, in order to live the dreams of Europe and America. And today you see that, you know, the, the idea that democracy has been just reduced to the idea of elections, elections are compromised everywhere. So, yeah, we are in trouble. It's so scary. America is, to the outside world, I think, looking like a, a, a place which um, perhaps will not be able to mend itself. I don't know, even our very sage friends, I don't know about Noam and all of them, but even sage friends talk about the possibility of civil war, you know, but then I say what, I mean, a civil war suggests that there are some regions or something where people feel, you know, is there, but here it's, it's as if society is just fragmented and everything is politicized there, you know, through that lens. So I don't know, I mean, I, I think it's deeply destabilizing and the unstable place now. It's a very fragile moment, uh, both here and there and all around uh, the world. And you said to, um, in an opinion piece for CNN, you say the damage to Indian democracy is not reversible. One might yeah. be able to say that about the United States as well, the damage done. Yeah. By the way, have you seen the movie Don't Look Up? Yes. Okay. Because I think there you see the obdurate behavior uh, in denial of a reality that is fast approaching the earth in the form of a, of a meteor. But uh, climate chaos poses an existential threat to everyone, from New York to New Delhi to New Zealand. Floods, droughts, storms, fires, and record heat waves are almost commonplace with more in the offing. Um, I often quip that the word unprecedented has kind of lost its meaning, its punch, because uh, every time we hear of a new fire or a new storm or a new flood, uh, the word unprecedented precedes it. It's critically important for the world's temperature not to exceed 1.5 centigrade. Uh, the way we are going, we will exceed that in a few years. What are your views about what can be done in the time remaining, because clearly the clock is ticking. See, David, I think that, you know, all the things that I do write about, whether it's the, whether you can leave the bauxite in the mountain in Chhattisgarh or whether it's about dams or whether it's about, uh, you know, the, the, the roads that are being blasted into the Himalayas glaciers are melting and so on. Every battle that one fights always ends up with a deep loss of 
you know, even though people know that they shouldn't be doing it, you know that you shouldn't be cutting all the forests and mining, you know that you shouldn't be building a dam, you know that you shouldn't be ruining the drainage of a whole plateau. But somehow the danger of climate change is so vast that it doesn't register on our little mind. And so for me, the idea is that uh, that can only be won by legislation of a certain kind. You can't make people feel guilty about driving SUVs if you keep providing them the SUV. You know, you can't be expecting uh, some moral principle will come and overtake humanity and everyone will behave themselves, you know. That's not going to happen. So I think that everything I write about, in fact, is about climate change. You know, the perspective that one has is about what does this do to this world? What does every single one of these projects do to our imaginations and to that actual place as well? People in this part of the world have been fighting those battles uh, because they're existential battles. They're not theoretical battles. In Europe and uh, so on, now they'll soon become existential battles because of the floods and the heat and the rain. But how many years have people been fighting in the forests, in the valleys, in the rivers? But they were not considered climate activists or environmental activists, or even if they were, they were sneered at for that. Well, it's hard to ignore the reality when you step out of your home in New Delhi and it's 45 degrees centigrade outside. I mean, that hits yeah. you right in the face. Yeah. And you just endured, I think, one of the hottest summers ever in South Asia and in India particularly. Yeah, almost 50. Almost 50 degrees centigrade. You once told me, I don't believe in speaking truth to power. Why not? Because power already knows the truth. Ah. Yes. Now, uh, people frequently ask me about your personal safety, uh, the dangers you face. I assume you take precautions, but what about that issue of, of danger? Well, look, in, in my case, people will wonder when I'm talking about all the people who are in jail, all the people who've been arrested, who've been attacked, uh, and, uh, you know, being on the A-list of anti-nationals, how am I not in jail? You know, it's a, it's a dance of, uh, you know, what are the costs and <laughs> benefits to the regime of, of, of uh, going after somebody like me? And um, I just find that, I just feel that you know, while one 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 should not be, while one should not be, um, uh, you know, uncautious. I think when they want to do something, they'll do it. You know, so there's no point in getting completely uh, colonized by this fear of what is going to happen, because uh, you know, individual people's acts of courage are so important. Like just now, just before we started this interview, I was telling you about a friend uh, of mine called Himanshu, who has been for years fighting this case 
of uh, a, a, a whole lot of uh, indigenous people who were shot in their village and he was asking the government you know to to institute an inquiry into the deaths and the supreme court has gone and said that you know your malafide and your defaming the uh, security forces and you have to pay uh, a fine of 500000 rupees now that's a huge amount of money and there's no way that he would have that money but i just saw him tweet he said i will not pay that money because if i pay it it would mean that i'm ex- I will, i'm accepting that i'm doing something wrong i have done nothing wrong uh, in asking for justice for people who were killed and i will not pay now that's such a clear inspiring act of courage you know so i feel it's very important for us not to hunch our shoulders not to become paranoid to be careful to not to be uh, you know stupidly brave or anything to be careful to be strategic but to continue to hold our position this piece of yours comes september has spread far and wide uh, and you say you conclude your essay with the time has come the walrus said perhaps things will get worse and then better perhaps there's a small god up in heaven readying herself for us another world is not only possible she's on her way maybe many of us won't be here to greet her but on a quiet day if i listen very carefully i can hear her breathing can you still hear her breathing i have to listen really carefully <laughs> i i have to say that that was a time when i felt that the injustices and the craziness and the rhetoric and everything was so up on the surface i felt more hopeful then than i feel now certainly i i feel like i don't want to be that person who just being hopeful because that's the position that you take i i i go through periods of very deep despair but i also know that it depends on you know sometimes you have to just reduce the scope of the lens you're looking through and you see people being so brave and so funny and so defiant but i i feel that you know it's not just the fascists and it's not just the hindu fundamentalists and the nationalists that we have to look out for but even ourselves there's been so much unpleasantness division this everyone locking themselves up into little silos rattling their cages locking themselves in and then rattling their cages but the loss of the idea of solidarity these are really terrible things you know so i do feel that we have also participated in flying that plane backwards i occasionally give uh, public talks and i sometimes conclude with that passage i just i just read the time has come the walrus said and, you know every time i read it and even now i choke up because it's so beautiful it's so heartfelt so, even if it's craft i mean we haven't talked about 
that at all because fundamentally i'm a fiction writer and i feel that poetry literature the way you build a story the way you tell a story the way you construct a sentence 